Nau te rau nāku te rau ka ora ai te iwi. With my food basket and your food basket, together we can nourish the people. Ete we fakapiri mai fakatata mai. No mai hoki mai ano kia te ahika. Kia ora tato katoa. You're with Radio New Zealand National, and this is Te Ahika. In this week's edition, we're at a memorial service for one of our country's greatest poets, Hone Tufare. The writing, the poetry just flowed out of the man. There were times I'd come, I'd turn up, and there would be a note on his door that basically said, gone out back in five minutes, but it would be a four-line poem. And I'm quite prepared to believe that if he left a note for the milkman, that would be a poem too, you know, and he would and, and, and he would be expounding about the delights of a fresh bottle of milk in his letterbox. Um, he was, you know, he was someone who was just in love with the written word, really. I'm getting an insight into what life was like for Māori in the 1930s and 1950s on a tour of a rural farming community. So that, um, the stream must be pretty popular during the summer. When the kids come back, eh? Around the other side of the uh, meeting house from where we're standing uh, is the swimming pool where the, a lot of people come to swim during the winter, especially those who don't mind swimming in refrigerated water <laughs> because the, the stream here, which comes out of the bush not far away, even on the hottest summer day, is not that warm. <laughs> <laughs> and we hear how a move from the city to a Māori-speaking community impacts on Pākehā Bruce Holm, so much so he has incorporated Te Reo Māori into his business. 80% um, Māori community here, and um, you know, Te Reo is um, widely spoken, and that's great, and you know, that we have um, um, kura kaupapa and um, two kōhangareo. And um, and so it's it's marvelous actually. Um, it was a real eye opener when I you know when I first came here. I was blown away by the fact that um, people came and spoke Maori in the shop. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And they still do, of course. Are you excited? Well, we are. Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori kicks off tomorrow. I ask some rangatahi, young people, their views on Te Reo Māori. How valuable is Te Reo to you? Uh, very valuable. Yep. Yeah. How? Uh, well, it's. Oh, I don't know. It's you caught it all, Māori? Later. Yeah, and how long have you been doing that for? Oh, well, I've been learning Māori since Kohanga Later. But, um, I mean, at the Kuratsuarua here, um, Māori wasn't really up there, um, and they weren't doing very well academically. So, but um, we got a new koka who come down from t- um, Tairawhiti, who's doing really well, so I kind of caught on quick with her because she's a really good teacher. Do you think you're going to utilise Te Reo Māori in your career? Uh, yep, um, I've already kind of started teaching at Tawa, like just every now and then, because um, Koka lets me take her classes sometimes, and it's pretty mean fun. And what do you think of uh, the Māori television station Te Reo? Mean, mean Māori mean. <laughs>
Uawa. Mm. What are you doing for Tuiki o Te Reo Māori? Hmm. Uh, kei te kōrero Māori au i ngā wākatoa i te kānga. Uh, ko tētahi oku hoa i tōku whare he um, uh, kōro Māori hoki ia. Uh, ko taku mahi hoki <laughs> Uh, he kai awhinau i te kohanga reo o te manaaki ngā tamariki, kei o te poti. Nā reira, kuka kai aku i reira ka tēnō puma o rātou mahi ki te reo Māori mō te rauiki. <laughs> Ko Rosanna, pē whairangi kwem tōku ingoa. He rio no ngā tupurau. Te ati haunui a pāpārangi, aro mai. How valuable is te reo to you? Uh, without today, I certainly know I wouldn't be here today, like sitting in this room with everyone that I know. Also, um, just to speak it is, is the most precious thing in my life at the moment. So knowing te reo Māori is really great and just being able to talk to different sort of people and knowing different people that can talk te reo. Now here's a task for you, and you can go to our website radionz.co.nz forward slash for more info. A hundred words every New Zealander should know. Well, we'll start with 20. In keeping with our place name pronunciation, current as in of a river, not in a cake. Awa. River. Iti. Small. Mafira iti. Kai. Kai kaura. The place where coda crayfish were eaten. That's reference to there being an abundance of crayfish or coda. Mania. Plain, as in a large space. I think prairie, as in little house of, not an as in plain looking. A stream. That's manga. Maunga. Mountain. Kawaito maunga. Komona pohatu te ingoa o taku maunga. Moana, sea. No Tauranga Moana Aho, I'm from Tauranga. The Moana indicates that it's the sea, by the sea. Motu is a Motunui. Nui, that's big. So, Motunui, big island. Or, as in of. One, sand. Pai, as in ridge or range. So, that would be Pai Kakariki. Papa, as in flat. So, that's like Paraparaumu. Poto. As in poto, as in short. Puke. Puke. Ahau, te puke. That's in the Bay of Plenty, by the way. I, te puke, kia ora. The hell. Roa, as in long, long, as in te awaroa, long river. Roto, as in rotorua. O roto iti. Ai, o roto ma. Tai, as in coast or tide. Taiho, what about roto? Roto's a lake. <laughs> tai as in coast or tidals. So that's how you have places like Te Tai Tokerai, Te Tai, te tai Rafiti. Why as in water? Why mana? Why wera? Why makariri? <laughs> Very cold water. Why kato? Why kato? Why why marama? Beautiful place. Why marama? And fanga, fanga harbour or bay? Fangarei. Whangamata. Whangaihu. Mm, you beat me there, Mariah. <laughs> so those there are just 20 words of 100 words every New Zealander should know. Join us again next week and we'll be looking at greetings. Like tēnā koe. E noho rā. Kia ora. Haramai. But that, we'll leave that for next week, I think, Mariah. <laughs> Aye.
A few weeks back, I was in Horohoro. That's a settlement lying at the base of the Horohoro Bluff, 16 kilometres from Rotorua on the Rotorua-Tokoroa Highway. Visiting at Kiaro Marae with Kaumatua, Bob Young. So what's this? We're, heading, we're at the back of the pa now, heading down towards um, a waterfall. Yes. Um, just in front of us is the, uh, the stream that flows through the marae called Pōkaitu. And uh, uh, down below us is a quite a large waterfall, and its name is Te Arero. Uh, now, the stream is a fairly big one, a lot of water flows through it. Back in the early years of the uh, 20th century, about 1905, uh, a parker living not far away um, wanted to establish a flax mill here. In those days, before the farming was established, a lot of the ground, especially the swampy ground, was covered in flax. Flax plants everywhere. And, and flax at that time had quite a lot of value in Europe. Uh, it was used for making ropes. Uh, and um, they were attempting to, some people were attempting to use it for things that uh, the, um, uh, to different forms of linen to see whether it was suitable as a substitute for linen. So the people, uh, the men, dug a channel through this little peninsula, this little piece of land sticking out into a bend of the stream, dug a channel and they installed a large water wheel uh, for the purpose of grinding the flax to uh, get the fiber uh, and prepare it for export. This was long before the marae was established here. In those days, the meeting house uh, was sited away up near the foot of the bluff, where most of the people lived in those days. And so this flax mill was built, and it seems to have worked fairly well for some years. Um, and the flat land, which is now the marae, behind us, they rigged up a lot of fences, and the flax after it had been through the mill and all the green material stripped from it by the grinding in the mill, uh, the dried fibre, uh, the fibre would be put um, draped over these wires running across the paddock to dry and then loaded into bales, put onto bullock wagons and taken from here down to the coast at Makatu to be shipped off to Auckland and over to Europe. Shortly before the First World War started, the price for flax uh, just dropped, the market disappeared, and so that activity ended. And that was one of the reasons why a lot of the people who were still living in the district at that time left the district, moved into Rotorua or further afield, looking for work. And so from the beginning of the First World War up until 1930, there, were ha there was hardly anybody left living in this district at all. So the area we're looking at now, would that have just been covered completely in flax? No, I imagine, uh, I don't know, I haven't seen any clear records of it, but the drier land probably wasn't. But wherever there was uh, lower land, where it was wetter, uh, there certainly would have been flax and ropo. Ropo was the other um, swamp plant that was very common. So the area that we're looking at, about how, how big is it? Uh, oh, it would be, it would be about a, 
bit over a quarter of an acre of reasonably gently sloping land and up behind us on the marae itself would be about two acres of flat land. So that, um, the stream must be pretty popular during the summer when the kids come it back, is. eh? Around, around the other side of the uh, meeting house from where we're standing uh, is the swimming pool where the, a lot of people come to swim during the winter, especially those who don't mind swimming in refrigerated water <laughs> because the, the stream here, which comes out of the bush not far away, even on the hottest summer day, is not that warm. <laughs> The kids seem to love it, but we older ones, well, we just watch. <laughs> so we're looking at what, um, what it looks like to me to be a little caper. Yes, uh, just across the paddock uh, from the, at the south of the marae uh, is one of the farmhouses of the style that they built during the land development years. Uh, it's a very plain building uh, with just a door set in the middle of the high wall uh, a lean-to type building with just a kitchen living room and a couple of bedrooms and a very small uh, bathroom. Many of the houses didn't even have a bathroom at the start. Uh, the, the practice was to have a bath, uh, an iron bath, um, at the cowshed. Uh, they had to have hot water at the cowshed to clean the dairy equipment and so, and that water was heated with a, a an old style copper, uh, which had a, a a copper tub with a fire underneath it, and the water was boiled in in there. Uh, the how a lot of the houses didn't have a piped water supply to them. Living conditions were very primitive at the beginning. They gradually improved, but life was very hard for the um, first families. And so they the uh, they would have to cart water from a tap outside, usually near the cowshed, and people would bath in warm water at the cowshed, out in the open air, uh, exposed to the sun and the wind and the rain and all the rest of it. Uh, that was what uh, life was like. Some of the families uh, couldn't stand that sort of life, and uh, the farms changed hands after a few years. Only the really toughest and fittest uh, managed to keep going until farming conditions improved slightly after the Second World War. But those first 10 years from 1930 to 1940, uh, life was very hard. The climate here is quite severe for North Island, New Zealand standards. Uh, the winters are quite cold. We don't have snow on the ground, but a lot of heavy frosts, a lot of rain, uh, and not much sunshine. So life wasn't easy. Bob Young, no horohoro. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray. And you're listening to Te Ahika. Loved son, boilermaker, union man, lover of the written word and woman, Hone Tufare, no Napuhi, Nati Kurokuro, Totahi Uriho, Mete Popoto. Was born in 1922, he contributed big time to the literature scene in Aotearoa penning poetry galore, including some of my favourites, Rain and No Ordinary Sun. 
1996, filmmaker Gaylene Preston made a documentary, Hone Tufare, No Other Lips. Mark Darby was the associate producer, and as a result of that time, forged what became a close friendship with Hone Tufare. At a memorial service for Tufare organised a few weeks ago, Mark Darby paid tribute to his mate. My name's Mark Darby, and uh, I've, uh, I'm an old friend of Hone's. He was a a very good mate of mine uh, back in the early 90s and that's how I came to make a documentary about him. And the documentary is called Hone Tufare? Yeah, just called that. Yeah. And that was directed by Gailene Preston? That's right. Now, she, um, yeah, she's I think still overseas. She, we, we were hoping she'd be here today to produ- uh, present it for myself but, uh, and I'm sure she would if she could but yeah, she's away at the moment. Now, that's the first time I've ever seen that documentary and what really strikes me about it is that it's it's kind of full full of all the effervescence of Hornea. Yeah, I mean, he was getting on by then. He was in his early 70s, uh, so uh, most of his writing was behind him, but he was still writing very actively then, and, he, and he, in fact, he published several books of poems since that film was made. So he was still working, and you really get that from him, but he was a big-hearted, warm-hearted guy, and he just embraced everybody and everything. He'd reached a stage in his life where he didn't have any enemies, really. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have any bitterness at all. And uh, that's what made him such a great mate. You know? I used to love just going and staying with him and spending time with him. And, and the film grew out of that. It grew out of that relationship we had. I mean, was he just, was he just on as from as soon as he woke up until he went to sleep? Was he just... I wouldn't say that, no. He got tired and he got grumpy. He was... He suffered from industrial deafness, a uh, result of a, a lifetime working in, in, in workshops where you, they didn't have hearing protection and, and they didn't have ACC. And so he had trouble hearing people and there were periods of time when his energy would drop and, and he wasn't good. So you know we shot him at his best at, at each part of the day when he was full on. But when he, when he was full on, as you could tell, you know, he was just the most marvellous guy. God, it must have just been a laugh fest. What? You heard the audience. Yeah. As we're watching it, everyone's just laughing their heads off. So imagine, I was just thinking what it must have been like for you, the crew, to try and keep the camera still. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, that's the reaction every filmmaker wants to their production, you know, and we certainly got it today, as you say. But, yeah, it was, a, it was an easy one to do because he was such a wonderful subject. He really was. In fact, it, it, it astonished me when I think about it that uh, no one had it seemed thought or at least tried seriously tried to make a documentary about him prior to this because I mean there's this one and then since then there's been the one where he went back to Hukyanga that's true but there's only those are the only two that exist as far as I know Mm. he does appear um, in in earlier films along with other poets but those are the only two productions based around him that I'm aware of yeah it seems that you had a friendship with him that was based on a love of literature on a love of literature, on, on a shared political outlook, uh, on a number of mutual friends. I feel very fortunate to have had him for a friend for that period of time in his life. I really do. Uh, we used to exchange poems, things that we'd read, stuff that we'd, that we'd heard. Uh, we, would, we would write to each other. He didn't do email or anything, but he, you know, he, he got his mail down at the Kaka Point post office. And uh, we, 
he, you know, he was a he was a very good friend for a number of years, for sure. Now I know people have described their relationships with other artists this way. They talk about how they'll just been in their presence sometimes, and then they just see them tune out work. Was it like that with Hone? Like when he was. Uh, lolling over words and devising his poems because it seems by the documentary that you spent a significant amount of time there with him we, we sure did and uh, we spent a lot more time with him than actually finally made it to the you know to the final version of the film but yeah I mean in the period of time that I knew him the writing the poetry just flowed out of the man there were times I'd come I'd turn up and there would be a note on his door that basically said, gone out back in five minutes, but it would be a four-line poem. And I'm quite prepared to believe that if he left a note for the milkman, that would be a poem too, you know, and he would and, and, and he would be expounding about the delights of a fresh bottle of milk in his letterbox. Um, he was, you know, he was someone who was just in love with the written word, really, and in love with the power of language to move people and to to transmit ideas and emotions to people. He could do that and he loved it, you know, when other people could as well. There was, there was no uh, possessiveness and very little ego in the man. I mean, you know, sure, he was proud of what he did. Uh, he had every reason to be. But he loved other people's work as well. He loved it. Loved it. Uh, he read it voraciously. He was always urging me to pass on to him anything that I'd, that I'd come across, you know, uh, that, had, that, 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 that impressed me. This was a precious occasion to me, and I'm very grateful to have had it because I wasn't at either of his tangi soon after he died, and uh, uh, you know I had some unfinished business really. I, you know, I really needed to to say goodbye to my old mate, and today gave me that opportunity. I'm very glad I had that chance. Mark Darby talking about his friendship with Hone Tsufare. I'm Sandy O'Neill, um, and I've got a connection with a lot of different people here, mainly through the trade unions, but um, it was interesting in the film of Marx where uh, Hone talked about Wordsworth and another famous old English poet, and it made me think about um, when I was in high school, I think maybe the third form, Westlake Girls High School, which I hated. Um, went home very excitedly and said to my mum, oh, mum, mum, we did this poem at school today. And um, it was by Honey Tufare. Did you know he was a poet? And she went, oh, he's just an ordinary person. And uh, she didn't like the poem because it wasn't like Wordsworth. It wasn't a proper poem because it was probably too ordinary. But it was the ordinary son. And uh, we'd known him. Well, I hadn't known him very well, but she'd known him a little bit, and my dad had too. And uh, he wrote that poem about 1964, and this was about three or four years later, I suppose, maybe 1968 or 69. And uh, so Honey Tufari was pretty new and it was pretty... Uh, still much in our consciousness because uh, a few years earlier I'd been at school in Tamahui and that's where he was when he wrote that poem. And uh, my best mate at school, uh, besides a few girls, uh, that I sat next to at school was his son Robert. 
And so Robert and Andrew were a couple of my best mates at that school. And so it was really very exciting to see that this person that had come home on the truck with my dad after work dropped off dad outside our place and we'd see him sitting up there practicing the reel and uh, didn't know at that time that he was writing the poems as well. So I just wanted to say he was a very ordinary person but he was actually an, also a very extraordinary person as has come out in this uh, few stories today and it's quite interesting to see how many little connections around here. I was thinking what a fantastic thing Fanona Tanga is because everybody here's got a connection with everybody else and there's a whole lot of other little hidden ones as well. So really fantastic and the poetry's really made a lot of connections with everyone today, I thought. Uh, kia ora tato. Um, I've not got anything particularly coherent or um, certainly profound to say about Hone, but um, like Mark, I couldn't get to his tangi, and um, I feel I should uh, sort of drop my own small tile into the mosaic that was um, was formed then, is being formed today. I, um, I first met Hone, I think it must have been 1967, we were preparing what were to be quite massive demonstrations against the visit of Air Vice Marshal Key, who was at that time the Prime Minister of Vietnam. 65? Good God. I'm older than I thought. Um, and I just instantly attracted to this man. He was on the organising committee and I was, I think, about nine. No, I was 21, perhaps. But enormously attracted to this... Um, to this man, he um, he made friends. He didn't just make friends; he made friends. You couldn't not be a friend of Honey's if you happened to be in the same organisation, in the same room, in the same union. I dare say, in the same party, which I wasn't. Um, yeah, he made friends, and like uh, again, as Mark said, uh, it was never a very constant thing. You know, he'd vanish, and you'd vanish, and you'd meet up, and I was roaming the country. Uh, as a union official at that time, and Honey was roaming the country as a number of different things at that time, and it was always magical because you'd turn up somewhere, turn up anywhere, and oh yeah, there would be walking down the street, by crikey, Graham, it's been a while, it's been a couple of years, hasn't it? It would have been a decade or something, you know. That, but you always, he always made you a friend again when you ran into him. He was one of a group of people who influenced me enormously, and I guess this is the bit I want to, I want to feed in. He was a product of a whole lot of things, but above all, I always felt Hone was a product of those amazing centres of working class culture that were already beginning to die out when I became an active young, um, uh, young union activist. And that was the railway workshops, that was the waterfronts, and that was the ships, were their ships' libraries, which were intense, productive, creative, fertile um, cultural centres that, um, for various reasons, were not able to survive and which we've not yet been able to replace, but we will. I guess I need to say to Hone that um, the last time I saw him, I strolled into a pub, one of those disreputable pubs in Dunedin, hadn't seen him for years, and there he was, large as life, with whatever it was he was drinking, he would have been drinking. And uh, again, it was, gee whiz, it's been a couple of years, hasn't it? And we sat down, it was, he made me friends again. 
And as I was leaving, um, he pulled out, um, he pulled out of his pocket, no, out of his bag, a pretty crumpled, it was pretty much like that then, book, and he wrote in it, and he gave it to me. And I pulled this out the other day, and I saw that it was dated the 1st of September 1980. Now, there wouldn't have been a month since then that it went past that I didn't think, I wonder how Hon is. I really must get down to see him. And I didn't. And I regret it enormously. Sorry. It's a funny thing, eh? Through a lifetime of exposure to someone's creative work, we as the audience or public feel we know that person intimately. Which of course we don't. Only I really know. One or two whare talks about the experience of being the grandchild of Hone Tufare. It's awesome um, to be here and it's awesome to just share with, um, you know, people who um, obviously admired and, um, and loved Grandad's work. Um, and because for us, it's, we have a, a different sort of a relationship, I suppose, from many of um, the rest of uh, the country and the world. And... Um, and it's always special to be, uh, I suppose, um, one of his descendants and to be able to be so absolutely proud of everything that, um, that he's done and uh, the way that he did it. Um, and, yeah, and it's been said before, you know, and I think it's apt, is that, you know, he was um, just an ordinary man and he was a ordinary grandfather and um, ordinary husband and father and, and everything else, great-grandfather, but he did extraordinary things. And um, and so, yeah, for, for me, and I've got my two children here as well, um, and I think it's something special for us to just be able to um, share in, in those things, and especially now that he's not here. So it's... Um, just want to say thank you for that opportunity. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll share a couple of stories because it's probably, you know, everybody's got their stories about um, about their interactions with Grandad. And I used to catch the ferry from Waiheke Island every day to go to Auckland Girls Grammar and secondary, for secondary school. And we used to pass the... Um, the rangatira, the bronze statue standing there every morning and um, often actually ran into Grandad in the square or would know that he had been there because um, there would be Puhutakawa put at the base of the um, of the statue and he would have a couple of row and um, if the if the flowers were out some um, Puhutakawa flowers down there as well and um, so, yeah, we always knew that he was in town, and then we'd start wandering Queen Street to find him, and then um, if we managed to find him, and we did a few times, he'd, you know, shove $20 in your pocket and refuse to um, let you say no. And uh, and then we had money to buy cigarettes, and we'd <laughs> run off and be tutu, and, um, and, and it was great. It was a nice, it was a wonderful little treat to, you know, to... Um, to meet up with them in those circumstances. And then um, there were other times as well where I was a student in the audience, like hundreds of others, 
listening to him um, speak to um, the school and um, read poetry and, and just talk about writing and talk about taking the words off the paper and making them live and giving them real life and um, and that they weren't there to be, uh, I suppose, confined to pages or to, to the covers of a book and that, um, yeah, that it was the expression of, of those words that was very much very important to him. And so I think he would have been um, stoked to be here uh, or just to know, and I'm sure he is here, um, that this has been held for him today because that um, is what's happening and this is the sort of uh, thing that, that you know, is far more up his alley than a tangi or, um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's giving some life to, um, to his work and to other work too and just want to acknowledge everybody else that's, um, that's going to or has already performed today. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, but I remember being sitting in the school audience and just being looking around the room at children who were uh, um, otherwise not really interested in uh, poetry and just being completely, or, or in, in um, English literature or any of the, the sort of subjects that you learn at school in English and being completely enthralled and he had them absolutely eating off the palm of his hand and um, you know age groups from you know 10 or 11 where often kids are getting wriggly and restless and um, you know sort of starting to chatter and things like that he would just have the room completely captured and and for a long time and and you could see um, the delight that that the kids and, and me included because I was one of them would just get from from the way he was able to um, I suppose just directly connect with us and and I think that's something that he did for age groups um, across the board but and races and everything else but um, um, in that respect I uh, truly, you know, admire just his his way of being able to. Uh, yeah, it's hard to explain. Just, I mean, he was just being himself, but just his way. Yeah. Moana Tufare, mukopuna of Hone Tufare, talking at a memorial service to her kraua, who died earlier this year in Wellington. And keeping with the arts theme... Next week on Nights with Brian Crump, we have the start of a drama series written by Moira Wairama. Fano means family, produced by Jason Tikare, so listen in. Pākehā Bruce Holm entered the predominantly Māori East Coast community of Tokomaru Bay. Nāti country. Back in 2003. Taking over the local dairy. How did you end up in Tokomaru Bay? Well, <laughs> I'd had a, um, a half share in a liquor store in Auckland um, uh, um, prior to that, and then I, we both sold out, my partner and I, and I was toying with the idea of this and that and everything else, and, um, and, um, and then I decided I'd go and see foodstuffs. 
um, which is a cooperative that the members own um, Foursquare, New World and Pack and Save, and I went along to Food Stuff Auckland and I said, listen, um, this is how much money I've got, um, can I buy a Foursquare? And they said, well, there's one in Kaikoe and there's one in Tokamara Bay. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been there once, and where is it again? And um, that was on a Monday, and um, on the Tuesday I arrived here at 10 to 5, and I walked into the store, and I thought, wow, I quite like this. And I managed to uh, end up being successful in buying it, so here I am. 80% are Māori community here, and um, the, you know, te reo is um, widely spoken, and that's great, and, you know, that we have um, um, a kura kaupapa and um, two kōhangareo. And um, and so it's it's marvelous actually. Um, it was a real eye opener when I you know when I first came here. I was blown away by the fact that um, people came and spoke Maori in the shop. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And they still do, of course. So when did you start um, putting bilingual signs up in your store? Um, I was trying to think about it the other day actually. About it was about June um, two thousand and five, I think it was that it, um, we had the official um, opening of it. Yeah. And what led you to um, decide to do that, Bruce? I was approached by some people in the community um, and they um, wondered whether I'd be amenable to the idea. And I was. Um, I didn't... When they first approached me, it took me some several months, um, actually, later to actually um, put it into effect because money was an issue. It was a new business for me in uh, 2003, so... Um, you know, it took me a while to get going, um, but yeah, I readily agreed to it because it was the obvious thing to do for any and every reason you can think of, really. So, how have you set the shop up then? Well, it's um, it's got the aisle markers in Maori on one side and um, English on the other, and then there are just some um, some signs that are just straight in Maori that um, you know say welcome and um, come in and have a good time, sort of thing. <laughs> come and have a good time in the shop. <laughs> Um, you mean yeah. spend up large? Yeah, well, that too. Yeah, and then there's a, a straight Maori sign on the outside um, saying welcome to this area. So by the aisle markers, you're talking about those um, the signage that you have on the end of aisles, eh, that show you what's in each aisle, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So what's an example? Um, kai o te ata, kai miraka, pōtō hua, hua whenua. Hopi, Waiutepe, Pata, Tihi, and so on. So by butter, Pata and Tihi, that's butter, cheese, um, fruit, um, like kai o te ata, mo te ata, you mean like, um, like stuff that you eat in the, like for parakuihi, like for breakfast? Yes. So that would be like cereals, things like that? Yeah. And... Um, in terms of your staff, do they respond to customers when they come in and they ask for they ask for the kai? Uh, there isn't, to be uh, to be honest, and a lot of Maori spoken in that manner. Um, the the, um, the Maori that is spoken is more conversational between between people, not specifically related to the purchase of goods, um, which is something that really um, I'm. I need to work on it in a sense. I mean, it's, it's a few of my staff actually are, you know, fluent in Māori, and, um, but they tend not to use it, with, which they sh- could and should do in a way. And I have to say that I also, I mean, having um, grandly stated way back then, you know, that I was keen to learn Māori, well, I am, and I am finally now doing it. Oh, good boy. So um, um, it's a long journey, but... Um, 
but I've started and I'm really enjoying it and um and I'm I can really um have a, a sense that I can really get a handle on it now and I I'm, because it's been hard for me uh, you know to run the business single handedly. This is not an easy business to run and um and it takes up a lot of my time. I'm very time poor. Um so, you know, it's a bit and I haven't really felt that I could devote the energy um to it up until now, but I've been here, you know, coming up five years in business here now. So it's um I've I've got to a stage now where I think I can just take a bit of time out and um study to and uh, I must say I'm really enjoying it. And what have been some of the locals' responses to seeing all the signage in Te Reo? Oh, well, everyone was um, overjoyed, I suppose, is the right word. And it still has um, resonance, um, even now, you know, from people visiting, um, coming and to see their faces light up. And, um, it is quite a special thing and uh, something we can all be will be proud of, and it always will be, the, the very first store in New Zealand to do it. So um, it's a bit of an icon store in that sense, and, um, and everyone's um, yeah very pleased that it's, it's happened the way it is. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. Not discounting the stores way back in the ra that had a... With your food basket and my food basket, together we can nourish the people. He rejoins us next week as he explains Google Māori. And we don't mean the Googling the Māori at the dance halls either, eh, Nan? Tēnei te mihi atu ki ngā kaimahi mi ngā kai kōrero katoa mō tēnei wahanga o te ahikā. Nau mai hoki mai anō a tērā wiki. Mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa. Māori ora. Speak te reo Māori as often as you can too, eh? Mm-hmm. Kōrero Māori, ia rā, ia rā e te iwi, kia kaha iwi mā.